Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike Indivina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Mac Reiner, who is an American metalcore drummer. He's most well known for being a founding member of the band August Burns Red. And this interview is a little different than my typical podcast where I interview a lot of recording engineers. Matt, being a professional musician who plays in a band that's doing very well and who also has a lot of experience in the studio himself, I thought it would be a great idea to have him on here to talk about you know, working in a band and writing music and what the process of writing music looks like for him and his band. And they actually have kind of a unique approach to writing their songs and they're a pretty technical metal band. So there's a lot of intricacies and a lot of little details that need to be paid attention to. And so Matt has a really interesting approach to how he goes about writing music and how his band goes about making sure that everyone's playing the right parts and all that kind of stuff. So we definitely chat about their writing process, but then we also chat about being in the studio and what it looks like to work in the studio and how to get the best drum tones when you're getting your drum recordings. What kind of steps should you be taking? What sort of considerations should you have as you get into recording drums? Whether you're the drummer or you're recording another drummer, um, you know, how do you get the right sounds? And we also get into a really fun conversation about the process of editing. And there's always a debate that a lot of engineers will have with their artists, which is, you know, how, how much do we edit? And should we edit everything because that's what the industry standard is these days? Or should we be leaving in the human feel? And Matt and I get into a really fun little debate about that. And I think it's an important conversation to have because it's something that as a producer or as an engineer or even as an artist, you need to be considering that stuff when you're in the studio and you need to consider how that affects your final product so that when you're releasing your music, you're showcasing something that meets the needs of both the production standards of today with the artists that you're working with as well. So yeah, this is a really fun conversation and I'm really looking forward to you checking it out. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Matt Greiner, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. What's going on, man? Thank you so much for having me. Just got to Grand Junction, Colorado, day off on the 20-year anniversary tour of the band I started in my parents' basement. <laughs> That's exciting, man. <laughs> 20 years is a long time. Thing. Yeah. It's crazy. It is. I was just reading a, a text or I guess an Instagram post that a friend made last night in Vegas. And he's like, 20 years, you know, so proud of this band for what they've done. And um, you know that you're on your 20-year anniversary tour. You know you started the band in 2003, but sometimes it just kind of hits differently. And today, like this morning when I read that, I was like, 20 years? I'm 37 years old, so I've been doing this effectively more than half of my life. Wild. <laughs> it's just wild. Crazy. Well, for people who might not be familiar with you or who you are, what you do, can you give us a little background on all the cool stuff you're up to and how you got into it? Yeah. So thank you for having me on, on the show, by the way. Um, of course. My name is Mac Reiner. I started playing drums when I was 15. Um, I was homeschooled, and as was the case with most things when you're homeschooled, everything you do can, be, can qualify as credits towards your education. So I started playing piano pretty early, um, not necessarily because I wanted to, but because it was part of the music curriculum. And I... I played piano for four years before realizing that um, I liked it, but not 
because I liked piano because I liked drumming. So here's what I remember about this. I was coming home from lessons one day from piano lessons. We were turning right on a main road in Mannheim, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. My mom was driving and I had my, my hands on the dashboard of the car and I was going one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. I was counting through five and I was starting and ending on a different finger every time I went through this. I'm like, what in the world? How, how is that possible? I have five digits. It should start and end the same every time. Well, as it turns out, I was kind of playing a polyrhythm without really realizing what it even was. And um, I turned to my mom and said, Mom, I, I like piano, but I like the rhythmic side of it more than the melodic side. I want to quit and I want to start playing drums. So she's, she was an easy sell. <laughs> I knew my dad would be the worst challenge. Which is surprising because a lot of parents, like, you tell drums and they like, they freak out, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I can't blame any parent for saying, like, yeah, I don't know, you know, the loud, expensive instrument. It's a lot of noise to put up with until it gets good, you know? <laughs> Ab- absolutely. <laughs> yes, that is very true. Uh, my, my dad got home from work and I said, Dad, I want to start playing drums. And... I remember his reaction, like his gears were turning. I could remember thinking he's going to go through all the phases I've been in and out of in the last five years, BMX, motocross, skateboarding, back to BMX. Um, and, he, and this is just another phase to him. So uh, he said, how about this? You get a snare drum for a year, you know, learn your rudiments after a year. We'll see. And I was like, all right. So I stuck with it for a year. I, I didn't, particularly enjoy rudiments and playing mm-hmm. snare. I don't know if that was the case for you or not, but for me, it was like, I just want the full kit. Experience. Yeah, it's like, that's the most exciting part, right? Like, play exactly. all, the, all the drums, make all the noise. Yes. <laughs> Where are my cymbals at? Yeah. I mean, I'm a cymbal guy, for sure. I realized that all these years later. So, finally, after a year, I wrote a check for 850 bucks for a Pearl Export chrome wrap finish kit. Huge toms. I had to bank them like Lars Ulrich because the kick drum was 22 <laughs> inches high. And I just fell in love with this thing and uh, had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> much like what you were saying. It was a long time till I could even like get over to my ride. It just scared me from, to go from my hi-hat kick and snare to like, how do I get over there? And then how do I get back to my hats? <laughs> <laughs> so eventually uh, started, uh, started ABR after buying my second drum set. Um, from my favorite drummer, played for a band called Zayo. His name is Jesse Smith. And it came with a pair of kind of busted double bass pedals. And that's when things took off for me. I just started to think in terms of polyrhythms and what can my feet be doing while my hands are doing something else. And uh, That was 2003 and just uh, been at it ever since. We're on our 20-year anniversary tour. That's amazing. I love yeah. that, man. It's crazy. I mean, obviously, you guys have... I mean, you, you've played in that band forever, but you've also recorded with other artists and, you know, you've been at this for a really long time. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing I, I, I know a lot of people that listen to this podcast that like they struggle with is like the process of writing things. And mm-hmm. um, I'd love to get into some of your writing process when it comes to coming up with drum parts and, you know, writing stuff that obviously works as a, as a song and not just like, you know, Fancy drums, right? Um, so, right. so I'd love to know, like, <laughs> when it comes to uh, when it comes to the music you're working on with August Burns Red, like, you you've worked, you you guys have a lot of technical metal stuff, which like has a lot of syncopated patterns, and you know, there's everything's really got to lock in, and that's actually one of the biggest things I find uh, problematic in the studio with a lot of bands is that they 
they're not li- like the musicians aren't listening to each other necessarily. So they're not super mm-hmm. tight because they're not paying attention to what the guitar player is doing or the bass player is doing, whatever that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. what does your process look like when it comes to writing drum parts that match up with all of that stuff and and just feel really tight? That's a great that is a great question. Um th- so this is the thing I like the most about drumming is the creative process. And over the years, I sucked at this because I, I, I couldn't figure out how to write drum parts that were appropriate for the song and not just a four or five minute drum solo. So I have these terms, literal drumming and non-literal drumming. Literal drumming would be, for example, in a song we have called Composure, there's a guitar riff that goes, and in my head, when I'm writing literal drumming, I'm going snare, 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 tom, tom, kick, snare hi-hat, I'm like literally matching every single mm-hmm. part of this riff. The problem is, how do you clap or how do you like headbang to that? There's just, <laughs> there's no groove to it. It's just like math and quick stops. So I had to figure out <laughs> this balance of like, how do I do this and still have it be catchy? And one of the biggest things that helped me was listening to a band called Meshuggah. So Tomas hake if that's how you say his name he's very good at writing things that sort of pull you in like where's the one where's the one what is what is musical about this and then all of a sudden he slides right into okay you know snares on two and four i don't need to be a drummer to follow along with this i'm bobbing my head and somehow it makes sense um that happened to me probably five or six years after i started playing drums so thrill seeker which is our first full length has a lot of just very literal drumming where it's not as groove oriented. And I found my, I found my style um, maybe 2006 or seven. And um, when this happened, I, I came up with this process I call creation, uh, memorization, application. So when you create something, let's say it's a paradiddle, you didn't come up with it, somebody else did. But you are sitting on your drum set playing it. And when you're creating something, try to keep it simple. So don't use all your symbols. Don't use all your toms. Keep it simple, stupid. Just kick, snare, maybe hats. Once you're playing this paradiddle, you now memorize it, which means you should be able to play it fast, slow, hard, and soft. Fast, slow, hard, and soft. And also be able to talk over top of it. So something I do with my students is I say, so you think you can play a paradiddle? Yeah, I mean, I've been playing a paradiddle all my life. Okay, play a paradiddle for me. So they start playing. I say, all right, tell me what you had for lunch today. And they'll be like, um, today I had, you know, it's very <laughs> syncopated and on beat with what they're playing. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I guess I don't have it down as well as I thought. Well, yeah, because you're, you're engaging two different parts of your brain at the same time and you're not used to doing that. Yeah. Once you have the part created and memorized, now you apply it. Creation, memorization, application. And this is where you become Travis Barker, where if the door's closed and I'm walking by the room you're playing in, and it's Travis Barker in there, I can't see who it is. But if he's playing, I could probably be able to say, that, that's, that's Travis Barker in there. How in the world do you have that kind of sound as a drummer? It's my understanding that it's in the application phase because there's lots of people that can play a paradiddle. There are a lot of people that can memorize a paradiddle. But a lot of people train for this marathon, and they only run a mile or two with the part. Mm -hmm. So sure, I can play a paradiddle. I'm going to move my right hand up to my hi-hat, keep my left hand on my snare. Here we go. 
Cool. That's one part of it. But what about when you start moving that thing around? You have it memorized. Why not try to get as much mileage out of it as you can? Once I realized that with my band and with my plane, um, I, I had so much more ceiling and, and headroom and um, potential in my plane because I had all of these tools, but for whatever reason, I just wasn't using them as much as I could have been. So I kind of went back to the drawing board, like, oh, okay, I can play 16-note triplets with my feet, and I've been playing snare on two and four. What about if I play 16-note triplets with my feet and double paradiddle with my hand over top? I can do both individually, but I've never put them together. And you start to come up with these patterns that are just really cool and creative and Mm -hmm. kind of your own. And to answer your question about how do you play musically, which is a really good thing to keep in mind as a drummer because you are playing with a band. You're not a solo artist. Um, for one thing, I have my mix almost like an album mix when I'm playing live. So drums are not trumping everything else. Guitars are pretty loud. And the reason for that is I don't want to be so focused on what I'm doing that I forget that you know the rhythm sounds like this. Um, the guitar rhythm or the solo, whatever it is, that I can just follow along and sync up with that. When I'm writing, I'm, I'm trying to be aware of the fact that people are going to be listening to us who are not drummers, uh, aren't even musicians. They're just, they just like the music or they like the lyrics. So you want to write something that adds to the song, not distracts from the song. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's great. I think, you know, I, I, the biggest thing that I can't stand is when I hear songs where it just sounds like everyone's just fulfilling their own ego and not really thinking about the song. And it's like, mm-hmm. and, and I get it, like as professional musicians, the more you enhance your skills and the, the better you get at your instrument, like there's this inherent need to feel like sometimes you just got to show off that talent a little bit. Right. But, <laughs> but like, you know, I, I remember one of my drum instructors, like teaching me very early on, like I remember wanting to learn some complicated thing and, and he was like, do yourself a favor. Just like listen to like the very first Weezer album and like learn that, like learn that entire album in like this week. And I was like, those aren't fancy drums. And he's like, yeah, but notice how good they are. Like how, how good the songs feel because of that. He's like, try, try uh-huh. adding some weird fills on top of it. See how it sounds like it's going to sound like garbage. Right. And, <laughs> and it's, it's like, it really made things click for me that like, yeah. Oh yeah. Sometimes simplicity is actually like the best way to go when it comes to music. And so, um, yeah, so I, I, I was wondering about that, like your philosophy on, you know, knowing that fine line of like serving, you know, showing off your technical abilities versus, you know, serving the song and, and how you go about that. Yeah, I, I think this is a good point that I even need to remind myself of because in this day and age, and I would say for the past 20 years, I can't speak before that because I've been playing for about 22. But for as long as I've been a a drummer, drums have been up on a riser in Guitar Center with a spotlight on them. And when you walk into Guitar Center and you sit down at that kit, how, how can you expect someone to not just go crazy? It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's it's like, like that like, scene in Wayne's World when like, Garth gets behind the kit and just you know, wails and, I, I like to play. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can't, you can't just sit down on that kit, right? And just play a nice 4-4 groove. You should. And... I, you obviously could, but that's, that's not the feeling you get when you look at that setup. Mm-hmm. So you're almost destined to fail in this day and age of, of internet drummers and just show off as fast and as crazy as you can get, do that. 
that's what's going to make you popular. That's what's going to get you likes. That's what's going to get you the job. And, um, you know, that's just not the case because it's hard. It's more challenging to play slow, slower tempos, and it's more challenging to play dynamically. And it's much more challenging to play the right thing instead of the crazy thing. So to your point about Weezer, it's, it's actually really hard to write the correct drum part for a song where there's not a whole lot going on. Because, be, because everything you do is so nuanced and matters and stands out and <laughs> is going to be noticed. Whereas in my genre, it, there are fanatics that come and they know every single kick pattern that I play and they know when I mess up, sure. But generally speaking, there's so much going on that you can hide a little mm-hmm. bit more, <laughs> especially with the groove part of what you're playing. My recommendation would be find a drum teacher who breaks you down. Like the one that I hired for, uh, it was about four or five lessons. I had pretty terrible drum lessons throughout. A couple good guys here and there, but there was a guy named Clyde Lucas. And when I went in there, I felt like I was the man. Like I was featured in Modern Drummer and like my band's starting to get bigger and you're starting to you know, puff your chest out a little bit. And, and he knew it. He could see it right away. He was this <laughs> 20-year-old punk. So I sit down and he said, all right, start playing. Just get warmed up a while. And he leaves. He walks up the stairs out of the basement. And so I'm just sitting there playing as impressively as I think I can. And I look up and I see on a TV screen my teacher's reflection. And on the TV screen is me. And what I realize is that he's recording me and he's, he's looking at, at me playing without actually being in the room. He comes downstairs and graciously is like, fantastic. All right. Now, let's get to work. And he has me play <laughs> just on my snare drum. One and a two and a three and a four and a, just real slow eighth note triplets. And I was like, oh, okay. Start playing. He's like, no, 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 no. Slower, softer. And I, I, I fell apart. Like I, I just broke Completely, he completely broke me by taking me back to the most simplistic form of drumming that I just had never spent time on. Because for me, like I said, guitar center, drums are up on a riser, spotlights on them, you go as crazy as you can. That was my experience with drumming my entire life. My friends, Matt, play the fastest thing you can play. The band, that's up the tempo. Let's play a heavier breakdown. That's, that's write a more complex rhythm, right? Everything's telling you crazier, faster, um, that's good, and it has its place. Mm-hmm. But if everything is crazy and everything's fast, nothing is crazy and nothing is fast. Because the dynamics in music will tell you <laughs> there has to be slow <laughs> in order for there to be something fast. Otherwise, it's just all the same. That's such a great point. And, and I love that your teacher did that and just like kind of broke you down that way. It's like sometimes you need to do that. And, and I've definitely been in situations like from a producer side of things where you, know, you find that band that's like really overplaying things. And it's like, okay, let's play the simplest beat you can over top of this rhythm or, you know, like guitars, like don't do all your noodling, just play like chords, background stuff, you know, like see how it sounds. And sometimes like the song all of a sudden comes to life because of that. And you're creating space in the, in the track and like things breathe and, and, you know, it becomes more exciting and, or more, um, almost like more familiar to your ear. Like, you know, sometimes like familiarity is like a good thing with, with songwriting. And I think like anyone listening to this, even if they're not a drummer, there's plenty of people listening to this that aren't drummers. Like the same concept holds true that like, 
you know, you just have to, you do always have to be serving the song and thinking about that and, you know, just really getting back to why are you writing this song and like, who is this for, you know? And, and I think when you think about that, then it changes the way you would approach it. Mm. Because, because like you said, like, you know, your audience, the majority of people listening to him, to the music aren't even musicians themselves. It's just like, mm-hmm. is this a good song or not? And what makes them feel that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true. I, I think um, a point I want to make about this is I took drum lessons because I wanted someone to tell me I was doing a good job. Like when I look back mm-hmm. on it, that's, that's why I took drum lessons in the beginning. I wanted someone to tell me, Matt, you were doing a good job. I needed to hear it. I knew that I was making progress and I was putting in the work, but that's what I wanted. So what I would say to drummers everywhere is you're doing a good job if you're practicing, if you're working hard. Now, get that out of the way and now find someone that will break you down and show you your blind spots. And I I think the same is true of anyone listening to this that's not a drummer and is listening to it for for other reasons. You know, I want to get good at recording or mixing or mastering or working in the studio setting. Um, try to get away from this idea of like, you need the affirmation. Like you need to be told you're doing a good job. Get away from that. Just build that into your baseline. So long as you are actually doing a good job practicing, working, and you're in it for the right reasons. Now that's out of the way. Find someone who you can be honest with and be like, I really suck at this thing. Find somewhere that you can intern and will tell you, hey, I need you to do the dirty work for me. Um, And you're going to do it with everything you have and you're going to pick up what you can in the studio setting. Um, Even though it might not be where you want to be, it's, it's all about building yourself from the ground up. And if you don't do that properly, you're going to have to go back and address those things. Mm-hmm. Right, you can't just like skip a couple steps and be like, "All right, now I'm at step eight. Well, yeah, but you skipped over two and three, so you're actually going to have to go back eventually and rebuild that. And it's actually going to be more challenging to do later. Might as well do it earlier. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I love that. That's great, great advice there. Um, so going back to the writing, especially for stuff like AVR, you know, w- you kind of talked about how you like technically like you kind of found yourself in this routine of like finding different ways to use rudiments and and using that as a creative part but with the band like what normally comes first with with you guys is like guitar like does it start from drum ideas like how how does that normally work Mm, that's a good question so in the beginning we would actually sit together in a room and start playing i remember on thrill seeker our first full length in 2005 jb and i the guitarist and i were standing in the barn on my parents' farm. And I was coming up with this pattern that was in six and he was playing a pattern in four and we were creating this polyrhythm. And it was just the coolest thing. I'll never forget figuring it out. We didn't have anyone to show us. We were just playing together. The next album, we started to work individually and send each other the songs a little bit more and then progressively more and more. So we're at the point and we've been at the point for years where JB and Dustin, the two songwriters, will send me the song on a program called Tabit, which is this antiquated MIDI program that's actually not available for Mac, uh, for Apple products. So you have to get (laughs) split (laughs) software like Vine, which I have on an old computer. And the thing we like about Tabit is that, first of all, we know it. Um, We know it in and out, and it's just very simplistic. But also, I like that I can see the rhythms 
like visually represented by numbers. Like, I'm really familiar with how it looks. So I can actually look at it and be like, oh, I know exactly what that rhythm is without even hearing it. And, and maybe that's the case with, you know, um, Guitar Pro or GarageBand or other software, but I've, I just haven't spent any time with it. So Tabit is what we use and we've been using for actually probably about 20 years. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it works. So uh, once I have the song in my inbox, there's kind of generic drum parts there and I'll go through part by part and do what I said earlier, create a part. I'll listen to a part over and over again. I'll memorize it and I'll apply it in as many different ways as possible. I use this format I call ABCD. So I'll like, I'll explore at least four different options for a drum part over top of a guitar part that's already there. All the guitars are in place. Transitions, the breakdowns. Um, I do at times change an intro or change a rhythm, but it's more and more rare that I do that. Um, I just focus most on what drum part do I want to write for this. And then once everything's put together, I go into the studio I record the drum tracks, and I have, at this point, never actually played with the band. Interesting. I've never played this song with the band. Um, I, I don't love this format. It works for us, but there are some... The, the, like, they're obviously pros. It's the most efficient time-wise. We don't have to actually get together. We don't have to play. You don't have to spend extra time at practice. But the cons would obviously be that you don't really know how it f- feels to play the song, you're just playing to a computer. And so the tempos sometimes are too fast or they're too slow. And I get in there to record it. Drums are done. Guitars are laid on top. And all of a sudden we get to band practice before a tour to play the song for the first time. And it's like, oh my gosh, this feels terrible. Because it's too fast when we're actually playing it together or it's too slow. Um, another factor in this that's kind of tough is I, when I get into the studio to record, I have to have the entire song memorized um now i say have to i i get my best drum takes if i have everything built into my brain and i start the song and i get the whole way through instead of doing parts and punching usually what we do is we playlist three or four takes and then we take the best part from each take and we build what's called a comp and then once that's done we go through, make sure everything's good, and we quantize everything. Now, this is the way it's done. Um, I am not especially, I'm not excited about the way that this is how our industry is and, and how I record drums. And back in the Messengers era, which was 2007, I was like, no way. I'm not beat <laughs> detecting my entire drum take. Like, I wrote these parts. I don't want mm-hmm. them to be computerized. So I worked my butt off practice to get to a point where I could actually do one take recording and, and, and have it be pretty darn close. And I recorded the whole album. We didn't use Beat Detective at all with two Madsen. We actually just slid around some of the hits that were, flam, were flaming yeah, once sense. there was a sample on snare. But I, I'm really proud of the fact that we did that on Messengers and... Um, you know, just to kind of prove to myself that I could, because everything else has been, has been quantized with few exceptions. Yeah. 
It's interesting. It, it's it's an interesting debate when it comes to the editing side of things. And uh, you know, I, I was chatting with one of my coaching students recently about this, and you know, she was like, "Should we? Should like? Should I be editing everything? Or like, what about like natural feel?" And I guess you can. It, it's such a a complicated discussion because, like, on one hand, when it comes to drums, or just any instrument in general, it's like I don't think any musician seeks, seeks out to not be in time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like. We, we were taught from the beginning, like we should always be playing in time. And so we, in theory, should be practicing enough that we are in time when it comes to recording, but we're humans, so we're not always going to be locking it in. So it's always that debate of like, you know, what's an acceptable amount to, to leave versus actually cleaning things up. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes it's like, the in, the industry is definitely at this the stage now where it's like everything should be super tight. That's just what people mm-hmm. will hear on the radio all the time. That's kind of what their ears are conditioned to hear, and they just expect it. And then there's like the ego side of the musician where it's like, no, like I played it that way, like you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it, it's it's, yeah. it's interesting to hear you talking about that because it sounds like you've kind of in some ways like yeah, you had that more natural performance early on, and now you're like, oh, I don't really like that we quantize it. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on like now that you you're playing music that is more quantized. Like, how do you feel as a drummer and, uh, you know, what's your take on it? Yeah. So this is one of the main things I wanted to talk about on here with you, because I, I haven't talked about this on any platform up until this point. Um, cause I, I, I didn't really know how I felt. Honestly, <laughs> I love when things are super tight. Like I, I will never forget when we went in to record with Adam D thrill seeker and I was not a great drummer, but I had written these cool drum parts. At least I felt like they were really cool. And I just, I wasn't good enough to play them. I had the parts written. I could get close, pretty close. Some, sometimes actually really not all that close. And then I had never even really, really heard of Beat Detective or quantizing or, you know, correcting these drum parts and making them perfect on the grid. It's like the studio secrets that like the studio magic that you didn't know about, right? <laughs> I, I had no idea. Like I, I, I had no experience with it. And so I recorded my, my drums. I felt like they were pretty sloppy, but like, all right, maybe it'll work. And then Adam D and his assistant Wayne went into a closet for like three days. I'm not kidding. It was like three days. They were just working, working on the drums. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what are they doing in there? I hope everything's all right. They come out and the drums sounded so sick. It's like, well, I didn't play them that well. What happened? And of course, what I realized later was you can play something well, but the difference between good and great is amazing. I mean, when it's locked into the grid perfectly, it's a whole different animal. So I loved it the first time I heard it. And then I I thought about it, you know, now we have to play these songs live. (laughs) And people, like you said, people's ears are conditioned to hear it a certain way. I have to really practice to be able to play it. Well, that's actually a really good thing for a musician. You now have the standard that's been set and you have to, if you care about what you do, match that standard and match the song performance that people expect that you played. (laughs) And they're coming out to see you in Salt Lake City tonight. I can't wait to hear him play Little Suburbies and Rooms. That part at 130, those 16-note triplets, oh my gosh, it's so tight. Can't believe he can do that. Well, I didn't do that. (laughs) <laughs> it sounded pretty bad on the recording. So, but tonight I should do that. So that difference between the bar being here and you actually being here, what does that do? And if you're not, if you can't see what I'm doing, there's like a three inch gap between the standard and where you are. You're either going to let that gap remain and just, it just is what it is. Or my personality is no way I'm working yep. to get there. 
So what does that do? It makes you a better drummer. It makes you a better musician. So I think there are actually pros to this, where if you actually care about what you do, the recording sounds amazing. You give people what they want to hear, which is tight and perfect and polished, and then you actually have to work hard to get to that point to deliver live. The, the con of it all, the, the downside of it all is, I just think it sounds like at times we are programming music. We are just using drum samplers and just programming MIDI, and I can't tell the difference sometimes between the two. The other side of this is like, when you listen to an album and you hear flubs or you hear just slight breaks in perfection, um, it's something you remember about the song, and I wouldn't say it's a negative thing. I would actually say it's like, oh, that's, that's cool. Like, I wonder what, or they're human. They're mm. actually human. They're, they're people that have played this song. I think that that's something that helps the music rather mm -hmm. than hurts it. Now, in the beginning, I wouldn't have said that because Thrill Seeker, that, that, that was the coolest thing in the world. My drums sound amazing. I definitely didn't play them that well. They sound great, awesome. Messengers, I wanted to prove to, my, to the ego side of my creativity and performance that I could do this, which I did. And then since then, it's been this... Um, progression of like tighter and tighter and tighter mm -hmm. i think what carson and grant do at atrium is really good and i think they're the best in the business at it and that they can quantize everything but still make it still leave room they don't tighten everything up so much so that there's no feeling i think that i'd like to keep continue working in that direction of less quantizing less perfection and more feeling i like the tight Beat rhythms, uh, yeah, double bass patterns. I like when things sound like they're put together and not flaming. But I would like to see more of that human element and less of the, well, yeah, you're not going to hear anything on this entire album that's a mistake. You're not going to hear any fluctuation at all. You might as well just put it on in the background and just enjoy it instead of like put on your headphones, right? And be like, oh, let's see what I can, okay, yeah, you hear that? That was awesome. Like the, that, that's something they left in there that was actually not perfect. Yeah. I'd like to see more of that. For sure. No, it's, it's, it's such an interesting topic, and, and I, I totally get both sides of it, you know, especially as a musician myself, and then the engineering side where it's like, you, you know that benefit of, like, when it is tight, it, it sounds way better sometimes, you know? And, and, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I do think, like, the best explanation I can give to people about it is that, like, if you just think of, like, your, your, your beats and you've got you know, you've got space between your beats. And if everything's locked in, you've got this like wide open plane for like ambience and, and just like stuff to fill that void that in like a pleasant way. But when you don't have everything super locked in, you got all these like flaming elements of like your your cymbals with your kick and your guitar mm -hmm. and your bass. Like, everyone's like kind of like trying to get it in the same spot, but it's not always locked in. And it's just like closing the gap of like that clarity that you had before. So it's like, to me, like I, that's why I think editing is such an important part of of modern production, especially when it comes to more technical metal stuff like that. Where you know, if if, if you didn't have that tightness, it would probably sound a little sloppy because everything's supposed to be like you know you're, you're trying to make kick drum rhythms that kick drum patterns that lock in with your guitars and all this stuff. And if people aren't hitting on that, then like it. it I mean, it's, yeah, you're going to want to be a better musician. So I, you know, like I, I get mm -hmm. both sides of it and it is such an interesting, uh, interesting topic. And, and, and I love hearing your perspective of it. 
that that's that okay that makes me think about something um if i was playing better in the studio there wouldn't be a need for beat detective i mean if you really boil it down it's like you, like a musician like me can pin it on the producer and the engineer and be like, ah, we really shouldn't be doing that. Well, there's an argument to be made that they wouldn't have to be if, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> if so true. you were playing, play better, man. And we won't have to do this, right? It's so true. And it's like, I think when you look at, when you listen back to like old music, like, you know, 60s and 70s and stuff, like they had no choice but to be tight musicians. They practiced their right. asses off. They like, they did pre-production mm-hmm. for like, years before they would enter the studio so that they were super tight and it it worked the way it did you know and and these days we're writing music so quickly because it's so accessible to us that you know we kind of rush through that process and and we don't feel like we need to be the best musicians because we know that we can fix ourselves very we can fix ourselves faster than we can improve our skills sometimes boom that's okay can i Go for it. Talk about that for a bit? Yeah, go for okay, it. Okay, because that just brought something to mind I wanted to talk about today with you. I want to get your opinion on this. So I have this theory when it comes to recording now. And the, the theory is just based on observation on me, which is because you know you get a second chance at this, your first take isn't going to be what it used to be. In other words, go back 30 years. And you know mentally you're recording the tape. You can see it. You can visualize what the process is like. I don't know much about tape. We never recorded anything like that. But I can just imagine, like, the stakes were higher. So you mentally knew that as you went into the studio. You rehearsed probably more. And when you performed, mostly talking about the performance, that take that you're playing, you know this is it. There's no do-overs here. You record the take. And you're pretty happy about it. And maybe you go back and you, you fix little things. But now you see how easy it is to, I don't know the shortcut for like new playlist, but I, I'm sure it's easy. <laughs> and you hit record on, okay, let's do a second take, third take, fourth take, fifth take. You know that mentally you can just keep going, keep going, keep going. And I think it's been to our detriment as musicians and in the studio that we have that option. And I, I, don't, I don't like that that's been the precedent that's been set where you know going in, you're going to be able to do five or six of these takes. And it's really not just about that first take. It's like, well, do your best and we'll just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, because when you see a band live, they only have that one shot. So you get you get all mm-hmm. the mistakes and all right, and there's there is I mean maybe that's just like the atmosphere of being in a big room and other people around you and like that that makes you kind of more forgiving I guess, but but yeah, in the studio side of things, like obviously if you fuck up, you you have to fix it up. Like you're not going to leave those mistakes and commercially release your record and spend you know thousands of dollars promoting something that doesn't sound very good, right? <laughs> right? So I get it from that perspective too. I mean, there, there's like there's reason to be good on a record, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have to be. Yeah, you have to be. But I do think it, it, it kind of ties to another idea that I've always thought of too, where I think a lot of musicians just don't pay enough attention to their own parts to, to play consistently, not just like from a in-time perspective, but some people just don't even know their parts to like lock in the same pattern sometimes too. And, mm-hmm. and I think that like you have to, you have to know your parts inside out because then... I mean, with all this editing, it makes it easier, obviously, to to compile stuff together and, and you know, make a solid take, but also just, like, to know that you're serving the song and, and you're playing it as tight as you can. Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I do think bands need to be prepared. Like, 
if you're not yeah. prepared and you're coming to the studio, like why why bother? You know, like it, it, then it is like this programmy kind of approach to it. I would ra- I, I think as a musician myself, I'd rather I'd feel more comfortable knowing that I performed these parts and that someone maybe cleaned it up a little bit, but not that they like transformed it radically, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like they did, you know, like Adam D did for me on Thrill Seeker. <laughs> that was a learning experience. I, um, I, I don't know if this is the case for you or not, or if you're listening to this, I don't know if, if it's still like this for you, if you've been doing this a while, but the studio is a sacred place. It's a really weird thing. When I go into the studio, it's, I, I don't know if it's because of how expensive the equipment is or, how expensive the project is or what's what's on the line you know the stakes are pretty high but it's this sacred place and when i think about recording it's it's like nothing else in my life it's the only thing that <laughs> there there really is nothing else as um i don't know the stage is a special place but something about the studio so when i go in there I think about the fact that, you know, I've been doing this for so long, so many different studios from Orlando um, to Franklin, Tennessee, to uh, Nashville, to Lancaster, to York, you know, Pennsylvania. All, you think about all these drum rooms. And it's, it's really cool for me to think about the fact that, yeah, you have this drum set. And yeah, you have this, you know, amazing sounding room and you have these amazing mics and gear and the producer and the engineer. But it's you that's making the music. It's it's you that is producing this sound, if you will. And to drive this point home, um, I recorded a drum sampler over the course of the last five years. Same drum set, same room, same heads, same mics, same everything. When I had the producer go in and just tap around, we recorded it, and the drums sounded completely different than when I played them. It's, it's mm. exactly the same sticks, same kit, same everything just a different person hitting them. And they, they sounded great. They just didn't, it just didn't sound like me. It's like you could actually tell the difference between two different people playing exactly the same thing. So think about that. It's really cool to think about the fact that, yeah, you can buy all the best gear and everything, but it, it really comes down to the human element, and that will never be replaced yeah. in the studio. There's something about the person coming in and doing the thing. All of these other factors can be the best or they can be the worst, but you're still going to have something that's distinct about the way that person does it. Yeah. So it's so true. So, so to, to kind of go back to like the writing side of things, like you, you kind of mentioned that you generally just take the guitar tracks as they are and you go to the studio and hit record. Are you ever like using your sampler to kind of like program your patterns ahead of time? Or are you just, you're just like, I know I can play it better than if I use my sampler. I'm just going to go to the studio and do it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I actually don't program anything. Okay. Um, I, I use the process of creation, memorization, application, and I build it all up here. And then I'm holding up my iPhone right now. I record a video on my phone once the song's done so that I don't forget it because that freaks me out and gives me nightmares at night. With <laughs> spending three or four days on one song, four or five hour days, you know, you're like, what if I forget these parts? Because I'm going right to the next song. Like you said earlier, the pace in which we record and release music is so fast now. Um, I'm, I've, I'm afraid I'm going to forget. So I, I do better just creating it, memorizing it, applying it, and just having it up here. Song one, okay, song two, here we go. Rather than sitting here and like programming my parts yeah. as a way of remembering them. 
No need for that. I like to go in and just, it's, it's never been recorded other than on my phone with a crappy video. Like I even have Pro Tools at home and I, I do at times record my takes into there just to have them, but um, I have a pretty good memory and it serves me best in the studio to have it, have it down. Like yeah. if I have it down up here, like I'm, I'm sure you've recorded enough drummers to know when, when a drummer knows his parts, he hits with this confidence of course. That you can just tell is it's it's what you want as a a producer and engineer and 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 so I know that about myself if I have it memorized I'm not going to second guess like oh what's this next fail <laughs> I forget what's next in the song which is frustrating then you have to go punch that part and your cymbal bleed doesn't work out and so then you have to go back earlier and you're not in the the pace of the song and I just do better doing song from from start to finish. I agree with that. I, I think there's like something to be said for like writing your music, writing your part and not relying on someone else to do that for you. And then you're learning your own song after it's too late, you know, like, you know, I think there's something to be said for like going in and having everything mapped out and just doing it. Um, right. Because, yeah, because there are some people that just will like punch in parts and be like, OK, let's let's try this chorus with like all these extra fills and one take that's just plain and has nothing fancy. And then like and then you're putting it in the hands of someone else to like create your creative vision like that that to me right. doesn't make sense you know um, right unless you just like have no clue about you know what serves the song best and you're leaving that into the hands of someone else that maybe knows right. a little bit better than you right but <laughs> but yeah i think it's like it it does make sense to just have that part mapped out mm-hmm. and and it's interesting that you don't program your stuff and, and i think it makes sense because obviously you're a drummer you're gonna be able to play it it's, it's it can't sound more real than the person actually playing it for real you know <laughs> right yeah. right and it helps you when you go to play that song live three months later and you already know your parts you don't have to actually generally speaking you know them you know you have to brush up a little bit but think about programming drums um and then months later you, you've never actually played the parts because they were programmed there's there's all that work on the on the back end so I would rather get the work done up front, have the parts work the way I want them to and sound the way I want them to so that when I go to play it live, if it is a single or it's one of the main songs, I can actually just pretty easily do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what, so when it comes to programming drums then, you know, some people listening to this aren't drummers themselves or maybe don't have access to a good drummer. So obviously, you know, they're going to have to rely on program drums. Um, mm-hmm. Are there any things that you can think of that, would allow programmed drums to sound better, like things that people should be considering to to make them sound more human-like? Mm-hmm. So my experience with programming drums, based on what I just said, is, is, is actually fairly limited because I am a drummer. And I, I learned something recently while... Uh, so so I, just, I just released a, a uh, drum sampler through Drumforge. And what I didn't know before this release was we actually need guitarists to promote the product more than we need drummers, which makes, makes a sense. lot of sense if you think about it. Because guitarists uh, generally don't, don't play drums, so they're going to be playing their parts, and then they can use our sampler to program. So um, I think that programming drums is, is, is essential for someone who, who doesn't have a drummer, or even if they do, wants to put together this full package song to present to their band. Because you almost have to be a salesman sometimes, I think, in a band where you have to say, this is going to work. Like, I, I just came up with this. I wrote this. Here it is. And if all you're sending your band 
or a producer or a label or whoever it might be that you're you're trying to showcase your best, you want it to sound great. And so what's the easiest way to get drums on something like that? Oh my gosh, program them. Well, you want a really good sounding drum set. Maybe maybe you like Gojira and you like the way Mario's drums sound. So you go to Mixwave and you pick up his drum sampler. How cool is that? Or maybe mm-hmm. you like ABR and my drum sounds and the way that I play. It's kind of scary how similar my drum sounds are to, to me so much so that when you put my drum sampler <laughs> on someone else's guitar playing, it's like, that kind of sounds like I recorded that, even though I didn't program the drums or anything. It's got my blast bell in there, all my effect symbols, the way I tune my drums, the way I hit. It's really wild. So there are so many upsides to this, just not ones that I've needed to benefit from because I am a drummer. But mm-hmm. I look at it now especially with the last couple of months, seeing how many guitarists are using it and have used it and have helped me out in promoting it. And it's like, oh my gosh, there's a, a huge market for this. Obviously, there's a lot of programs out there. And, the, the, and I get it. Like, I understand why. There's a need to have your song sound awesome and you want to um, convey that with a full-sounding song with cool drum parts and great drum sounds on top yeah. of your playing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I think just something for people to keep in mind who are listening to this, like if you are in that position where you do have to program drums, obviously picking the right drum sound is always important. You need to find something that matches the the energy of the the song and that that blends well with it. Like drum drum selection is, itself is a big part, but also like analyze the way drummers play if you're going to be programming drums. Like you know, we first off we only have four limbs. You know, we got two arms and two feet. So if if you can't have more than that going on at a time, you know, and then <laughs> and then like just even velocities. I, and I think one of the reasons why you said that like you know, you have a harder, it's, it's, it's just easier for you to play it than it is a program is because when you're actually having to think about like the velocities between hits and like the, just the general dynamics of like ghost notes and, and compared to your loud hits on your snare or, or just even every hit, like to be really conscious of all of that is very difficult. Obviously, if you know how to play, you're just going to do it naturally. But like, mm-hmm. but you, but if you are programming, you do need to be aware of that fact that not every hit is going to be at the same intensity every time because mm. then it starts to sound mechanical. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know, to make it sound human, you need that that fluctuation and 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 dynamics and everything, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, so JB and well, mainly JB and Dustin, who are the songwriters in my band, they are very good at knowing. Hey, you can't hit. <laughs> A crash, a hat, a china, a floor tom, kicking a snare at the same time. <laughs> no, it's not going to work. Um, so they're good at programming. And they're also good at programming drum parts in a way where it's like, that's a really cool drum part. Like, I, I get what you mean by having that part there. It makes me, it helps me understand what kind of sound you want. For example, like maybe it's a three over four pattern. So it's kind of the syncopated part on top of this rhythm. Okay, so you don't want it to just be a two-step. You probably don't want it to just be straightforward. Okay, mm-hmm. thank you. That's cool. It's it's almost like sending me a note as the drummer saying, here's what I'm thinking of here without actually typing any words. You're just showing me the beat. Um, the other upside I want to talk about with programming drums is it's expensive to record. And the totally. one element to the one element in recording that you need a really good uh, room for are drums. You like you can record guitars and vocals in a you know, a closet, uh, but you need a good room for drums. So 
if you don't have a thousand bucks or five thousand or ten thousand dollars to save up for this project, I mean, you you can legitimately buy a drum sampler for a couple hundred bucks and get good at using it, um, and, and you can have a really cool sounding product. So obviously, financially, it's advantageous, um, and maybe you don't have a great drummer that you can use or employ for this thing, and 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 now you can you can be creative in your own way. But to your point. It, it, it might be helpful to consult a drummer and be like, hey, what do you think about these drum parts? Is this playable? Is this something that could work? Are these parts cool? Maybe hire someone to program the drums for you. Um, there, the, there are a lot of ways to do it. You want to be careful that you're not writing parts that can't be played, though, because you're going to put yourself... You're going to be in trouble once it comes to play a show. <laughs> actually have a drummer play play yeah, everything the way you have a second it. drummer just to play those extra couple <laughs> arms <laughs> you're gonna need two drummers now 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 it's getting expensive yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean totally uh, you definitely have to be mindful of all of that stuff and um you know i i do think that you know, one of the really big advan- advantages of these program drums, like you said, is that you can get the sound of a professional drummer right away. And if you don't have the big room for it or whatever, then, you know, you have access to these these tracks that have been really well recorded. That said, there are still a lot of people that are going to the studio and recording live drums. And that's something you obviously have a lot of experience with having made so many albums. So I'd love to talk about um, getting in the studio and getting drum, getting great drum sounds. Like, what what advice would you give to someone as far as like picking the right drums to to begin with and getting a sound that matches the vibe of the song? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I recommend just as a baseline maple shells. Um, you, you really can't go wrong with maple. I've recorded with several different wood types, and there are some differences as far as warmth is concerned. But maple's pretty safe. My preference for recording is the most important thing for me is um know know the sound that you have as a drummer before you go in to record because what'll happen is you'll you'll kind of be chasing this rainbow when you're in there like i'm not exactly sure what what sound i want and there there are so many opportunities so many options maybe you don't know what sound you have and you're going to figure it out in the studio but if you like the sound of you know, really clear toms that are, are tight sounding and you can hear the tonal quality right off the bat as soon as you hit it, you're probably not going to want huge toms. So I use 10 and 12-inch rack toms and a 16-inch floor. I use Evans G2 clear heads. I think they're really sharp and to the point. And um, for my snare drum, I use uh, a coated heavyweight snare. It has a nice crack to it. I, I really like... Funny enough, I really like uh, wooden shells in the studio. Namely, one particular snare that my old drum company made. It's this little five and a half inch snare, and it just it sounds so good under a mic. Note to self, I wish someone would have told me years ago, something might sound awesome to you, to your naked ear, but you take it into the studio and you play it and it sounds like garbage. That's such a good and, point uh, to bring up. <laughs> I, I remember like I remember like going to music stores and like trying out kits and being like, "How is this kit so expensive?" Like I, even like like the the no offense Yamaha, but like their Yamaha like uh, studio kits, mm-hmm. it's like 
when I hear them live, I'm like, why? Like these don't sound very good to me. Like, and then and then you put a mic against them, and you're like, holy shit! Like now I get I it. Know. Like they they sound they great record well. Mic. So <laughs> yeah, my experience with this was um, a marching snare drum. So I didn't grow up doing marching, but I always wanted to. And I, I love the sound of some Slipknot stuff where they do these overdubs on top of breakdowns. And I was like, I think I can get that with this marching snare. It sounds awesome to the naked ear. I have tried using this. I, I past tense, I stopped trying. But there were like <laughs> three records in a row. I was like, okay, Carson, here we go. I'm going upstairs. It's got a mic on this. It's going to sound great. And I played these. Thinking like, okay, here we go. Recorded it, sounded awesome, went down to the <laughs> control room. And it's like, wait, you sure the mic was that that mic's broken. There's something's wrong. <laughs> no, that's the way it sounds, Matt. It sounds like a literally a tin pan that's about an inch thick. There's no depth to it. The marching snare is like a foot deep, you know? <laughs> There's no body. So you you gotta be prepared for that as a drummer. Like maybe it's not going to sound great under a mic. Um my number one piece of advice would be, this applies to all of life, but definitely in the studio. The line is, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Meaning, get the drum set sounding good up front before you do anything. Get it set up exactly the way you want it. Get everything perfect and go over everything two or three or four or five or six times. Because once you get started... If you kind of cut corners or you weren't really sure about something, you're going to be kicking yourself later. Get it done right the first time. You're going to save yourself so many headaches down the line. For example, years ago, we started recording and there was some noise in an overhead mic and we just, we didn't think it was a huge deal. We're going in to mix the album and it's like, we can't use more room mics because anytime you bump that up, you can hear it. Well, now your drum sounds limited because there are certain parts you want a lot of room, you, like these slower parts where there's more ambience. Mm. And it just, it sucks because you're like, man, we should have just swapped that out. We should have just done something differently because we can't go back and do anything about it now. So do the right thing up front, get everything the way you want it to sound and feel, and then start recording. Even if it takes you a day or two days or three days, the recording might not actually take that long. It's, it's, it's like painting. It's all prep work. And then yeah. once you're into it, it's worth it. For sure. Yeah, I love that. It, yeah, it's, it's definitely super important when it comes to the studio to just get everything sounding as good as you can. Like, don't try to be fixing mm-hmm. it in the mix later because you might not be able to. And you might be, like, really screwing yourself over if you just, like, gloss over something. You know, like, you pay, pay, attention, pay attention to those details and then you're going to set yourself yeah. up for success. Yeah. Right. The details. That, that's exactly right. That's the word. Pay attention to the details, the, the smallest details, because they, they can become huge and um, you, they're sort of under a microscope in the studio before you know it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, hey, that's what a microphone is, right? It's like, it is a microscope. It's like <laughs> picking everything up, like the finest detail, you know, right? And I think partially that's why sometimes drums don't sound as good under a microphone or sometimes they sound better. It's like the, the way the mic reacts to it uh, gives you a certain true. sound, right? Uh, you know, same thing holds true if you're a guitar player. Like often when you're playing guitar in a room, it sounds really big and full. And then you put like a SM57 in front of it and it's just going to sound really shrill and thin because it's it's right. Like you're, you're not listening with your ears right up against the speaker cone, you know? Mm. So the microphone is doing it that way. And so, yeah, it changes things up a little bit. Um, 
but yeah, you you talked about some um, shell type selection that you like. You like the maple kit and you like the, the Evans mm-hmm. heads. Um, what about tuning? Like, because tuning is obviously a massive part of getting a great drum mm-hmm. sound. So, what's your advice yeah. for that? Because because one thing that I find with your drum kit is that like I love the sound of your toms. Like they they like they just sound. There's like a splat to them that's really cool, but they're not like really boomy and sustained. Like they're just, they. But you feel you still feel that that tone out of them. So I'm curious to know about your tuning selection and and how you go about that. Yep. Cool. I'm glad you like it. That's awesome. Um, I I use what's called TuneBot. It's a little device. It's like a hundred bucks for the studio, and maybe the gig one's like fifty. And it it has been awesome. I, I don't record without it. We don't tour without it. Actually, interesting. My tuning is very methodical. So if if you're the kind of drummer who just likes to play it by ear. This is probably not for you, but if you want the same sound consistently every night on tour or, or for every song in the studio, we actually tune in between takes. Sometimes it's every two takes, but you know Carson will come through uh, talk back and be like, hey, that's, that's check tuning. I have my numbers written on my, on my heads of the frequency. The, so the TuneBot actually measures, and I apologize for not knowing the correct terminology. I'm not great with this stuff, but... Um, you can set it so you latch it on the side of your drum on the hoop, turn it on, and it measures, correct me if I'm wrong, the frequency yep. of the drum. To get this reading accurate, you actually have to dampen the, the resonant head or the opposite head so that you're just reading the head that you're tuning. And you go around and you just find the number um, that you want to tune to. They actually have a website where you can reference people's kits it's not totally relevant because every drum set's different and heads are different but but once you find your tuning uh you can actually tune to a to a note so i so i actually tune 10 inch and 16 inch an octave apart and then the 12 inch tom is a fifth i believe and once i have those numbers i can actually sharpie it on the head and i can go throughout the recording process changing heads every couple songs and i can get the exact same tuning every time so it's 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 extremely methodical yeah. Um, takes the stress out of it. I love that. Yeah, that's, it's such a cool tool. Like, I, I've never used it myself, and I've always kind of been a little skeptical of it because I always, my, my thought was like, well, yeah, every drum kit's going to sound different, and the shell material and the thick and the skins are going to sound different. Um, but it's, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that you use it. And, uh, and yeah. I, I, it's something I've always wanted to try personally, but I just, ha- just haven't gotten around to it. You should, you should totally check out the TuneBot. And if you're listening to this, it's, it's such a cheap investment. Like, I can't believe it's so cheap. I, I guess there would be no reason for it to be expensive, but what it does in comparison to what I used to have to do tuning, where I'm just basically winging it, like True. I think this sounds good. It's I don't know about you, but that that starts to make me go crazy. It definitely makes sense when you're changing skins all the time because you're you're trying to make it sound exactly the same. So there, I, that 100, percent I I understand. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I remember recording Constellations over 10 years ago in Florida with Jason Sukoff, and we could not get the one Tom to sound good and. I, I spent like two hours on it. And then he's like, I think it might be the head. So I changed out the head, put on another one. Within minutes, it was good. Well, you still have to record after doing all of that. It's, exa- it's exhausting <laughs> mentally. And then you still have to play the parts. So take, take out as much, try to mitigate as much of that stress and worry and doubt that you have about, does this sound good? Work on it at home before you get to the studio. Like, don't waste your time in the studio trying to figure out tuning. Work on it at home. Get it good. Get your numbers down with the TuneBot. And then once you get in there, it'll be exactly the same every single time. Yeah, that's great advice. I love that. Uh, it's, it reminds me of, um, 
I don't use a TuneBot, but I have one of those Evans Torque keys. I don't know if you've used those. Mm-hmm. But, but like to me, I love that. And what I love about that is that it allows you to kind of find the tuning range of your drums. And so you know how, how low you can go before it starts to get a little wonky. And you, wonky. you know how tight, how tight it can go before it becomes too thin sounding. So you can really yeah. find that range and then recall that very quickly with the, with the torque key. But exactly. The, but the, uh, and the tune bot would be the same sort of idea because you're actually getting more precise because you're seeing the actual frequency range, like the actual frequency number on there. So if you're hitting that, then it's, it is that exact note every time. Yes, the TuneBot's great because it's it's not it's not contingent on the tension of the tension rod, which mine get rusty could be because they get sweaty, and then it's like, well, you're actually tuning for the tension instead of the note. So the TuneBot takes all that out of the equation and just says, okay, here's the note. There are some frustrations with it at times when it's like it's not it's not I can't get it I can't. Well, there's this feature called a filter on there, and the filter eliminates any of those overtones. So you can just find the note that's the most prominent. And usually that works very well for um, toms. Snare drum can be a little tricky with the resonant side, the snare side. But um, you get good at it. It's just like practicing drums. You get better and better at using the TuneBot. I recommend it if you're a drummer or you're a producer engineer, you're listening to this and you're like, man, drums are just tough. I have a, a hard time tuning. I would get one. And I would reach out to me or reach out to Carson or Grant at Atrium and we'll help you out with the numbers we use. And Carson is really good at this particular, just doing the research and figuring out what the note should be. And um, you you start to approach it more like a guitar as far as tuning than just this instrument that's like, well, we'll see what sounds Mm -hmm. good. Yeah, that's such a good point because like so many people approach drums that way where, you know, it's like guitars. There's yeah, there's a note. You're tuning to a specific note. That's that's a guarantee. And then drums, people are kind of like, yeah, we'll just (laughs) we'll see if it sounds good. If it sounds good, sure, we'll keep it. Yeah. Like there's not much thought (laughs) given to it. Right. And 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 a lot of like a lot of drummers don't even know how to tune their kits. So it's it's almost impossible to expect that a non drummer would know how to get it sounding super perfect (laughs) either. Right. So so something like the TuneBot is definitely a great solution for that where it like does eliminate a lot of that guesswork out of the process. Yes, it does. Seriously, it's it's a cheap investment. I, I'm not endorsed by them. I, I know one of the guys over there. He's very nice, Simon. Uh, but check it out. It, it'd be my number one piece of advice for recording. The, the other thing I would say with recording is, like I said earlier, know your parts. You're going to get the best product if you know what you're playing before you get there. If that's not the case for you and you don't have the time or it's the type of project where you're writing part by part, then um, I would say keep it simple, stupid. Start with the most simplistic format and then build on it because you're trying to be a musician who works with the band and not be a show-off. There are many, many times I have to dial something back. And I guess this would be my third point. Be humble. Like, Don't get your feelings hurt because someone doesn't, like what you played or doesn't like what you wrote it's okay it's just a part it's just a rhythm it's it's it really doesn't matter don't take offense to it i wish someone would have told me that 10 10 or 15 years ago because i took it very personally i spent all this time and you know spent all this energy on this and this was mine and it's like matt can you can you maybe do something differently here and the way that you react to someone in the studio can be too intense for what it is because it's the studio. It's, you have these creative feelings on the line. Try to, try to get rid of that. Try to go in and be like, all right, let's make the best project, the best 
song, the best album we can. That's the main goal. Not, not having my ego stroked or, or offended. Um, that really doesn't matter. Yeah, for sure. Dude, I think that's a great way to wrap up the episode. So maybe we should uh, start to tie it up here. If people want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so um, I actually started teaching drum lessons pretty early on, but I just launched a drumming subscription website in 2020 over COVID. <laughs> I built a studio in my house. And um, for 10 bucks a month, you can learn ABR songs. And I have a couple courses on there. And I teach one-on-one lessons for a little cheaper uh, with a membership. So that is mattgrinerlessons.com. M-A-T-T-G-R-E-I-N-E-R lessons.com. And I'm happy to talk about any recording um, or writing tips too. I do Zoom one-on-one. And um, I have a lot of experience with the writing part of it. And I, 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 I have some practical things to say about how to go into the studio, like we've talked about. But yeah. I'm happy to help you out if you're like, I, I really don't know what I'm doing or I don't know how to do this. Um, I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy to help. My email address is mattgrinerlessons at gmail.com. It's affiliated with the, the uh, site. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely include uh, links to that website in the show notes so that people got that. Cool. Awesome, man. Thank you so thank much you. for having me on here. And, and, and thank you for listening to this. I know I'm not the most well-versed in this world, but coming from a more pragmatic, like I'm a drummer going to the studio, I, I hope it's been really helpful. No, I think it's been great. And, uh, you know, it is, it is a little different than my normal conversations where it's just like all about the engineering side of things. But, but I think that we do have to sometimes just get back to like, the music part of it and you know focusing mm-hmm. on the instrumentation and obviously with your background in the studio you've, you've been there you've done it so there's a lot a lot of great lessons to learn and i think you shared a lot of that stuff here today so so thank you cool thank awesome. you very much for having me i appreciate it so that was my interview with mac reiner and that was a lot of fun i really enjoyed having a drummer on the podcast and someone who just is so wrapped up about that stuff i mean me being a drummer myself Obviously, I love to get nerdy about drum stuff, so uh, definitely fun to chat about that and to break up the usual podcast structure of interviewing engineers, but I thought Matt provided us with a lot of really great insight into the way his band's writing process works and how he goes about being creative in the studio, and I really enjoyed having the conversation around editing because I think that that is such a big part of music production these days, and when you're working with artists, there is always that fine line of, you know, meeting the needs of today's expectations versus what a musician would normally want. And so I thought it was really interesting to hear Matt's perspective on that. And I think it's interesting that he's tried so many different ways and that he finds pros and cons in both of them. So, you know, maybe there isn't a definitive answer about which is best, but, uh, you know, you have to just kind of decide for yourself what is the sound that you're going for. So yeah, very interesting topic to talk about here. So I, I really enjoyed that. I hope that you enjoyed that too. If you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And if you're looking for advice on how to create pro sounding recordings from your home studio, definitely make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help out musicians with understanding the recording, editing, and mixing process, and really diving into your process so that you know exactly what to do, what to listen for, how to dial in settings, so you can get the sounds that you hear in your head to come out of your speakers, and so that you can be ultimately proud of the music that you're working on and get it out in the world, because that's what it's all about, right? Why keep these songs to yourself? Let them out, share it with the world, 
make someone's day and have a lot of fun with it, right? So definitely make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com. And while you're there, make sure to check out my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And in that book, I break down the process of mixing step-by-step to eliminate all of the guesswork and to make it easy for you. So check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available at MasterYourMix.com. So we've reached the end of the episode. I hope that you enjoyed it and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.